You're listening to Wake Up Tucson. This podcast is a Bustos Media production on The Voice. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. All right. When you hear Francis Albert, you're on the third hour of Wake Up Tucson, 1030 The Voice, local news and talk. And our next guest was introduced to me by Terry from the Oro Valley Historical Society. And this young lady is the guest speaker, February 19th. at the. Uh, it's going to be at the Hilton El Conquistador. No, sorry. Oro Valley Country Club. Don't yell at me, Terry. Oro Valley Country Club. And it's at 3 p.m., and her name is uh, Wynn Brown. Wynn, good morning, and welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me on here. And uh, you have two books that you, uh, you you brought today. One is Remarkable Women of Arizona, and then um, The Forgotten Botanist about Sarah Plummer Lemon. That's Lemon with two M's. Take the hint. We'll get right. there. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, the mountain is not named for a misspelled citrus tree. <laughs> I can see, there has to be someone from back east who's gone up the Mount Lemon Highway looking for citrus. There, People always <laughs> ask me about that. Yeah, I, I, wow, you got cactus and ponderosa <laughs> pine and lemon trees? That's great. That's great. Um, so where's where's Wynn from in the in the world? Where are you from originally? I am, I'm a Ford Motor product. I'm well played. Born in, you and, and Ted Nugent. Yeah, that's right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Found on road dead. Fix or repair daily. Yeah. I was born in Detroit and then moved a lot of different places. Gotcha. And, Came to Tucson in the 70s to go to grad school. And what did you do in grad school? Um, I majored in, I actually created an interdisciplinary master's program in biology and scientific illustration. Wow. So why scientific illustration? Were you someone who did art as a, as a young lady and then it kind of all came together or... I, I was always interested in in science as far as natural history, and I was always interested in drawing, and it was a logical combination. I'm really interested in intersections. I like when things overlap. <laughs> and scientific <laughs> illustration is a wonderful overlap of science and art. Um, and it's drawing is a great way to observe what it is that you're looking at, to really see it. Well, and there's so many uh, classes out there, the world of science, where you learn by drawing it or kind of I mean I, I used to have a, uh, a class back in New York years ago learning about how to do sports medicine and you used to color muscle groups with exactly. your crayons right to figure out how it all kind of came together so well and, right. and Sarah Lemon was really a person who was in those two intersections of science and art because she was a botanical illustrator gotcha so what was your what was your first published book the first published one um, was the one called, at that time, it was called More Than Petticoats, Remarkable Arizona Women. Okay. It was part of a national series called More Than Petticoats, and there was one for every state. I was okay. lucky enough in 2002 to do the, the book on Arizona. The third edition just came out a couple of months ago, and, and some of your listeners might remember having read previous editions more than petticoats it's no longer has that major title and i like to think i'm partly responsible for that <laughs> because i had a huge fight with amazon to get the book out of their underwear department <laughs> <laughs> so now the title is simply remarkable arizona women all right so let's talk about so you go from you're you're a science scientific illustration in a lot of your education how did the writing about strong women come into your life 
Um, I started. I'm not saying you might be a strong woman yourself. That's what you hit me as, but <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> um, I started writing uh, horse articles because I used to do endurance riding, where you ride a horse for 50 or 100 miles in a day. And I started selling articles to horse magazines, and I realized that journalism was a really good fit for me. So I was a journalist. Um, I, I was in Knoxville, Tennessee at that point, and I was a staff writer and copy editor for the Knoxville News Sentinel for six years. Very rarely do I meet a uh, endurance, ho- endurance horsewoman like yourself. <laughs> so now you've opened up another uh, another peel of the onion here. Uh, so tell me, how did you get into endurance horse 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 riding? I, I had horses, and I wanted to go places that you can only get to on horseback and that's awesome. trails love it and i'm i'm still on the trails i'm a very very slow trail runner <laughs> <laughs> no hoofs just just feet oh okay <laughs> uh so writing the remarkable women of arizona book what was what were a couple of the things that were surprises for you as you're jumping into that that topic Oh, right. I'm sure there's lots, yeah. but what's a couple? Give me one or two top surprises of writing that I book. I think the top surprise is how many there are. Um, I wrote the first edition. I started it when I was still in Tennessee, and I went to the library, and there were no, there was nothing about women of Arizona. I, there were lots of men of Arizona, which kind of begged the question: Where did the men come from? If there was nothing about women, correct. Um, and then once I moved back here, I. Um, Everybody had stories about their grandmothers or their great-grandmothers, and I think what really struck me is how many forgotten, neglected, ignored women of history there are. And I could have done, I could have done several sequels, less remarkable women, even more remarkable women. So in a, if women are, weren't being documented as much, Right. Talk mm-hmm. about researching that book. How does that become a little different? What's what's the what's the so many extra steps other than just verbally that you can that helped you write those stories? These days, the internet is a huge help. Um, when I back in two thousand, when I first started doing this, it was a lot harder, and and you spent a lot of time at various libraries. With the Sarah Lemon book, I was incredibly lucky because Sarah Lemon's sister was a keeper of correspondence, ah. and she had 1,200 pages of Sarah's letters, um, and I they were at in the archives out in Berkeley, uh, University of California and Jepson Herbaria Archives. And I went through all 1,200 pages. I photographed every page. I moved it onto <coughs> my hard drive, read them, um, and, and just fell in love with Sarah Lemon's voice, her way of observing, her determination, her resilience, and decided this, this has to be a book. All right, hold that thought. That's a good, that's a good uh, tease for our next segment. We're going we're gonna to jump into that book, which is The Forgotten Botanist. And if you have any questions or comments, 790-2040 or wakeuptucsoncomments at gmail.com. You can uh, hear this young lady talk in person 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. Uh, with the Oro Valley Historical Society. You want to go to ovhistory.org. I know I can write. I can read today. February 19th, 3 p.m. at the Oro Valley Country Club, which is right across the street from the El Conquistador Resort. You're on Wake Up Tucson, 1030 The Voice, local news and talk. 
All right, 819 in the morning. Christy Simone and you, Matthew ESQ, doing good work out there. Remember, he's getting those podcasts up early. Check him out at kvoi.com. Totally spoiling listeners like Don and crew who are huge podcasters. We're talking with author Wynn Brown. She's going to be with the Oral Valley Historical Society doing a discussion. And it's February 19th, Oral Valley Country Club. And it starts at 3 p.m. Go to ovhistory.org to find out more. And we do want to, you, you did a good radio tease for our next uh, book. Uh, well, your book you're talking about, The Forgotten Botanist, Sarah Plummer Lemon's Life of Science and Art. So this one seems, you just did a, a, a book, on, well, recently, you always had this book about strong women, right? Mm-hmm. You're a science, scientific illustration kind of gal yourself, and you lived in Tucson. <laughs> so this one kind of, now in retrospect, this feels like a, a no-brainer that you jumped on this one, I feel like. But ha- tell, tell, tell us about the journey of Wynn Brown to uh, Sarah Plummer Lemon. I was doing a presentation for Sky Island Alliance, oh, it must be 12, 13 years ago, gotcha. about remarkable women of the Sky Islands. And I think that was when I first learned that Mount Lemon was named for an 1880s woman <laughs> botanist and artist who climbed the mountain on her honeymoon at age 44. Wow. And I thought... Now, that's pretty intriguing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. And then I found out a few years later that uh, the archives in Berkeley had six linear feet of material on Sarah and her husband, John Gill Lemon. And, but I didn't know if it was letters, if it was drawings, if it was field notes. And I thought, okay, one of these days I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get there. In 2015, I finally got there, and, just, and that was when I learned that there were boxes and boxes of letters and they also had two boxes of Sarah's paintings, the only surviving watercolors. And most of those are done in the Huachucas, Okay, which was pretty thrilling. Um, and But nobody had seen the paintings recently because they're so incredibly fragile. All the paintings were on paper. They were um, kept in, in Hawaii so that there was a lot of humidity and they weren't protected. So there were a lot of, there was a huge amount of bug damage to them. And so the archivists had not been able to even look at the, at the second painting because they were afraid if they moved the first one, it would just crumble. Right. So in 2015, I paid um, a, a local art conservator, professional art conservator in Berkeley, to come and assess the artwork because universities are low on money and uh, University of California had no money to do it. That can't be true. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, yeah. <laughs> At least that's what I was At the told. University of California, Berkeley, we, we don't have any money. <laughs> right. <laughs> we have no money for art conservation. Right. So uh, my husband, Dave Peterson, and I and the art conservator had spent a very long day looking at the, the artwork in these two boxes. There were 276 paintings. And I photographed every one of them because I wanted images of those paintings in the book that I had not yet written and I did not yet have a contract for. Any crumbling? Any what? Any crumbling? No, the, the corners, the, the, you have to be really careful because the paper is just so fragile. Gotcha. But that's why you pay a professional art conservator to to handle them. Sure. Um, so I um, I photographed all of them and, those, and the photographs, there are about 30 of those images that are in the book. And I was very pleased. The book is published by University of Nebraska Press. Nice. It's under the Bison Books imprint, which, and that imprint is for general readers. 
so when uh, you, you were coming out of pocket with an art conservator, which I assume is not cheap. No, uh, no, an art conservator uh, is... Especially for Berkeley. Right, yeah, it's $1,500 a day. Yikes. Hopefully you only had them for a half a day. I had her for a whole day. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> the exciting thing is that just last year, the archivist discovered two more boxes of Sarah Lemon's paintings in the archives. They were in much a much bigger, the boxes are much bigger and they were stored somewhere else. And I think maybe they did some, some house cleaning uh, during the pandemic and found these two boxes. And so there's another 200 box or 200 paintings. Uh, so um, in August, once again, I paid the art conservator. And this time, the other person who joined Team Sarah, as we refer to it, um, is Sarah Lemon's great-great-grandniece. Oh, wow. And so the five of us, the archivist, Dave, the art conservator, um, and Sarah's great-great-grandniece and I worked for three days getting all of these paintings into archival quality folders separated with glassine sheets and then putting them in archival quality boxes. What that means is that now other researchers can come and see these paintings. These paintings will never travel. They're way, way too fragile. But what I'm hoping is that eventually, maybe with enough donations, is possible to do digital restorations. Um, of since I have images of all of them, restore those digitally so that people could see maybe what they looked like 140 years ago, 150 years ago when they were created here in the San. We found that the new box actually has some from the Santa Catalinas. So you said that um, Sarah's sister was a pack rat. Yes. Sorry, family archivist. Right. Order, no, she wasn't a hoarder rat. <laughs> so, a keeper of correspondence is what I like to say. So for all you people out there that your family says, you know, why are you saving this? Please keep it. Please scan it. Please. These, these letters are treasures. They are historical treasures. So how did it end up in Berkeley, the, the journey of these things? So she, she, she ended up in Hawaii... Well, she didn't. No, oh, she, she didn't. Yeah, she she married John Lemon, um, who was another botanist, and they settled in Oakland, and they had what they called a herbarium, which is where they kept all their plant specimens. Gotcha. Um, and the, that collection of plant specimens went to Berkeley because the herbarium was right down the street gotcha. from Berkeley. Okay, that makes sense. But all the letters and those two boxes of paintings... Um, were with Sarah's sister. She gave them to her daughter, uh, Sarah's niece. Sarah's niece gave them to her son, who ended up being a botanist in Hawaii. In fact, the Plant Sciences Laboratory at University of Hawaii is named for him. Oh, wow. The Harold St. John Plant Laboratory. When you say a botanist fell in love with a botanist, it feels like a Hallmark movie. You know, it does, doesn't it? Chlor yes. Chlorophyll of love or something <laughs> like that. Oh, I love that. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about Sarah's experience on Mount Lemmon, because uh, I don't want to run out of time. So what, 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 what was Sarah doing in Arizona, and why was she climbing up Mount Lemmon at as part of her honeymoon at age 44 or 45, like you said. 
the the lemons were at well the time of the 1870s 1880s were a time of really fierce botanic activity i am just wow. feverish activity everybody was trying to find new plants identify them and the catalinas were an area that had not been explored why was there i mean you say the word fierce right <laughs> so why was it a was it a was it just there was this grand enlightenment that they wanted to was there some sort of motive financially if you did such things no what was it? it was just no, botanists right? have never made thinking. a lot of that's money. what i'm thinking so <laughs> it was just there was some sort of the thrill of discovery going through the yeah. botany world yeah the hunt for finding new species having species named for you the primary botanist american botanist was a man named asa gray who was at harvard and there were people all over the country, scrambling around ravines, climbing trees, whacking down branches and flowers and pine cones and sending all their material to Asa Gray. And then he and one other person at Harvard would identify and figure out that these were new species. They would name them and often they would name the species for the discoverer. So Sarah and John Lemon are actually credited with 3% of the vascular plants in Arizona. Actually, I should say, <laughs> Sarah doesn't get a lot of the credit because the plant labels are usually identified as J.G. Lemon and wife. Gotcha. Just the, just, that was the Times. Right. I'll spare you the feminist rant. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, can you hold on to one more segment with me, please? Absolutely. Awesome. We're talking with author Wynn Brown. The book is The Forgotten Botanist. I assume we can find this at all fine Amazons now. And uh, You can, but it'd be great to support the local bookstores. Tell mostly me more. Books, uh, Antigone. Okay. Um, and they both stock it. And I'm, I'm happy to send anybody a signed book plate if they want to contact me on my website. And what's your website? Surprisingly enough, it's winbrown.com. Damn it. Hey, when's that easy? <laughs> awesome. All right. Hold on for two. Hold on for bottom of the hour news. We'll come back. We'll do one more segment with Win Brown. We'll, we'll also get her top two or three locally owned restaurants. I know you guys get on my case when I don't ask people that, but that's coming. You're on Wake Up Tucson, 1030 The Voice, local news and talk. All right, you're on the Wake Up Tucson show, 1030 The Voice, local news and talk. Christopher D. Simone and Matthew Neely, J. Neely doing a great job as always, sir. And we're going to do one more segment with author Wynn Brown. You can see her February 19th with the Oral Valley Historical Society at the Oral Valley Country Club at 3 p.m. Wynn, welcome back. Thanks for hanging out. Thank you. This has been great. We Have were talking about food. She's getting ready for her food discussion. And then she was talking about her love for Alvernon donuts and roasted chicken, which already gave her super street cred here in the wake up <laughs> world. So um, we're talking about the book, uh, The Forgotten Botanist, Sarah Plummer Lemon's Life of Science and Art. So uh, her and Mr. Lemon. John Lemon. John right? Lemon. Known usually as J.G. Lemon. J.G. Uh, start, you, you talk about they went to the Catalina Mountains. There was a place that was not too discovered in relation to the botany world, I assume, and specimens and whatever they were looking for. They were, Yeah, they were looking for new species of plants, and they arrived in Tucson in 1881 on the train, and they went to a, a Fort Lowell, which at that point really was a fort, right. and got themselves organized and got all their... And they, they had plant presses and food and all their camping stuff, and it's not clear where exactly they, they were, but I like to think that it was somewhere pretty close to where the Sabino Canyon Visitor Center is. Okay. And their plan was to get to the top of the Catalinas. 
there was no Catalina Highway. There were no trails, <laughs> and these, and they both had terrible health. Um, Let me ask you: How did Tucson get on their radar? Because the train. The train went there, okay. and they had very little money, but they had free train tickets from from California from the from Governor Stanford, or <laughs> uh, who believed that uh, that they were doing good stuff. Okay, all right, and um, so they um, they just started climbing up the mountains, and of course, at that point, they didn't realize that what you see, the mountains that you see as we're down here in, in Tucson, is not the top of Mount Lemmon. It's kind of the four mountains, the the four slopes. Sure. And so they spent two weeks struggling to get to the top, pausing all the time to collect new mallows, new agaves, new, all these plants that Did were they have support personnel with them? No, it was just them. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so no local people who might have traipsed through there before. No. Wow. No, this was this was virgin territory as far as botanical research. And after 2 weeks they got to maybe the first top the top of the first slopes and they looked up and realized that there was way more mountain and that they were not going to get there. And every time I drive up Catalina Highway, I think about these two frail Sarah's health was terrible. John Lemon had been a prisoner at Andersonville and Florence and I am during the Civil War and had survived being a prisoner of war wow. barely. Uh, what was her maladies? She had pneumonia, she had uh, bronchitis, she just had terrible health. In fact, the reason that she was out west was because she was born in Maine, raised in Massachusetts, um, then lived in New York and almost died every winter from colds, bronchitis, and realized that she was going to have to leave the north uh, northeast because the weather was going to kill her. What month was this when they started? April. All right. So it was getting a little toasty. Nice when they started out, but then it got really toasty. So what you're saying is we couldn't pick two worse people to traipse up a giant side of a mountain. That's that's pretty much <laughs> summing it up accurately. <laughs> yeah. So they, they, they gave up, sort of. They gave up approaching it from this side. They went back to town, and they talked to various people, and they learned that Emerson Oliver Stratton on the north side of the mountains, he was the owner of the Pandora Ranch, he might be able to help them. So they took a stagecoach around the side, they got a, a wagon and to haul all their stuff and, and met him. And he said he had pack animals, he'd never been to the top of the mountain, but he was pretty sure he kind of knew how to get there. So the three of them loaded up his pack animals and to the best I can tell, they probably followed what's now the Oracle Ridge Trail. Okay. Much of which, sadly, burned in the Bighorn Fire. But um, Dave and I tried to follow their footsteps. We cheated. We started at Summerhaven and went downhill. Sure. No, that's all but right. It's, it's 13 miles, and it was a very long day for us, and we decided the lemons are tougher than we are. <laughs> and they had all those physical maladies. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so what's... And, and, and it, this is something that people can hear about more at your Oral Valley Historical Society presentation, yes, correct? Yes, I do a slide presentation, um, and it has pictures of Sarah and the plants and her paintings, and and then uh, I will do an update on, on the recent paintings. Gotcha. All right, so what is the, what is the, the... What's the true legacy of Sarah Plummer Lemon? What is the true legacy of what she did in these, not just in, on the Mount Lemon, on Mount Lemon, but other areas? What's her What's her legacy? 
You know, for me, I think it's not being forgotten. My editor at University of Nebraska Press was the one who came up with the title, The Forgotten Botanist, um, which I just love. Sure. And, um, you know, to me, the legacy is curiosity, resilience, not giving up in the face of horrible health and and societal pressures and and just keeping on doing what you love, which is what she did. Awesome. Um, what's the next book? <laughs> Your husband's very, laughing at, yeah. at this right now. <laughs> it's giggling, not it's, laughing. It's very, it's very different. What I'm trying to do again in the world of intersections is combine words and my scientific illustration background and I'm writing what I call poetic narratives and it's a combination of of poetry and illustration in which the illustrations aren't just decorations but they actually work with the words to tell a story. Love it. Love it. And you're going to be at the book fair. I am. I'm going to be there. I'm doing a panel Saturday afternoon at four o'clock, uh, Women Writing the West. And I'll also be signing books at the BCA uh, booth, Borderland Community Alliance. Gotcha. Awesome. All right. When, when's the book fair this year? I, I, what's it March date? 4th and 5th. 4th and 5th. Wonderful oh. event. It's this incredible event for, for writers. It's a professional development opportunity that's free right in our backyard. Actually, I did the rant on Mexican food, right? I said Mexican food capital, gems capital of the world, and the book fair is pretty amazing. So It is. Third biggest in the country. Probably our top, that's probably our top threes right now. Uh, so the big question, uh, you're enough of a foodie, so I can ask you, top three locally owned places. I know you just like 12. But give me give me a give me a, give me a smattering of three. For special occasions, feast absolutely. Awesome. Doug Levy is is a, just a wonderfully creative person, and he's done so much for Tucson during the pandemic. Very too. nice human being. That's what yes, I like about him. Wonderful human being. Before I get to his chefness, he seems like a pretty nice guy. <laughs> uh, you already mentioned Alvernon Donuts. <laughs> so best what do you donuts. what are you getting at Alvernon Donuts? I get the chicken. And what are you getting? Now, chicken's great. They do the roasted chicken, right? Mm -hmm. Relatives to the queen donut guy out on Kenny. What about on the donut side? Are you getting anything in the donut side? Are you an apple frittle girl? Or what, what, no, what? I'm a bacon wrapped. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well played to win. Yeah. Well played. <laughs> and what's yeah. your third one? You know, I love uh, I love all ethnic foods, and I would have to give Phonon a. Um, a plug for for their foe. Now this could be a virgin entry into the Wake Up Tucson restaurant lexicon. Tell me what where is Phonon? It's um on on Grant and it's east of Swan. Okay, uh, and they have terrific foe. Beautiful. Am I saying that wrong when I say foe? I never know what I've been I've been criticized on foe. I've heard pho, foul. We'll, we'll get to it one day. Yeah, I I, I think if foe. you say foe, people pretty much figure that it's real it's not foe is there not. a particular foe you like they the the big one <laughs> this is one that everything <laughs> one, in it right the one that has all the <laughs> all the kinds of meat <laughs> the one that you don't have to make a decision about right right <laughs> the house the, the house foe as right. we like to call it because their broth is just really good nothing good, better than a good broth yeah all right well great meeting you today uh, great books and uh hopefully we'll talk again in the future and you can check her out with the Historical Society Oral Valley. It's on February 19th at the Oral Valley Country Club. Go to ovhistory.org to find out more. And uh, you're going to have books to sign and stuff when you're there? 
I certainly will. Awesome. All right. Well, great meeting you and your husband today. And uh, all the best of luck. When you when you get to your faux artics, let me know. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much. All right. Great meeting you. That's Wynn Brown. The book is The Forgotten Botanist. And again, the other book, of course, is Remarkable Arizona Women. All right. So I'm going to leave early because I got to go to the uh, I got to go to a meeting. So what I, I it came up as a Facebook memory, believe it or not, 10 years ago in uh, a guy who was the host of Celebrity Apprentice, who became the president, was actually trying to push for Mitt Romney, believe it or not, in those days. Rick Sturtz and I interviewed him 10 years ago this week. So check it out when we come back. You're on Wake Up Tucson. I'll see you Wednesday, but wait for this interview. It's, it's, it, 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 it ages in a weird, wild way. I've gave up. That didn't give up. She just said, you know... I don't know. I just don't want to compete. It's sort of like some of our presidential candidates, right? She, I don't agree with that. She just didn't want to compete. I just miss- terrible analogy, but let's use it anyway. I miss Gary Busey. That's all I know. Uh, he was great with Meatloaf, <laughs> right? one of the all-time great scenes. That was one of the best in the history of reality television, the scene with, with Meatloaf, right? It's very appropriate you're calling about Governor Romney running for, running for the presidency of the United States because my co-host and I have talked about how when it looked like he was really becoming the front runner, and he still is kind of the front runner, don't get me wrong, there's always this right. ebb and flow, it right. seemed like the Obama administration had to get to a point, especially bringing up, hammering on the Bain Capital thing, that the only thing we can do to this guy is demonize the entrepreneur. Yeah, that's right, and uh, hopefully they haven't succeeded in that. I will say, I've gotten to know him really well, and Mitt Romney's a great guy. He's going to do, I think, tremendously as a candidate, and he's going to do really importantly, He's going to, I think he's going to do really well against Obama and win, and I also believe he's going to be a great president, and that's why I decided to go this route. Well, it feels like we need an adult running the economy. Well, it's, it would be nice. It would be nice. I agree with you 100%. It would be nice. And, you know, he's got a great record. And for a little while, he was tentative about wanting to speak because he didn't like to brag. You know, he's up, maybe he's the opposite of me. He doesn't right. want to talk about it. Sure. And he was, uh, and that's a nice trait. That's not a bad trait. But he did a fantastic job. He'd take companies that were dying and make them into great companies. And that means jobs, and that means all sorts of uh, education for the people that work there and health care and everything. So... I mean, he did a fantastic job, and I think now he really is willing to speak about it openly. And, he, you know, the, the, what he did is a fantastic thing. And you're right, they tried to demonize him, and I don't think it worked. Well, I don't think that demonizing success is a wise, is a wise uh, uh, trait to do in a country like the United States. Well, it's, uh, you know, I will say they're trying, and they continue to try, and not only with him, with success generally, and there's a lot of class warfare stuff. Every time you see a speech on the other side, you see the class warfare all over the place. But I think in the end it's going to be very interesting because lots of things are happening, and, you know, he's got Obama has no power, no control, no respect from OPEC. And what they're doing to us now with the oil, and you get it, you see it big league out in Arizona because that's a big driving. You don't have lots of subways out there. You are and correct. You're going to see it big league out there. And, you know, when oil hits $5 and then $6 a gallon, or maybe even more than that because nobody in the White House knows what they're doing, and OPEC is just riding herd over us, I have a feeling that the Republican, and I think that's going to be Mitt Romney, is going to win the election. Is this, is this oil thing going to be a mixed blessing? Or we're going to get ha- well, we're going to hammer this bad. summer? Yeah, it's going to be a mixed blessing because it's going to be very, very bad for the economy. But I think it's going to be very good for the Republican candidate. 
You know, we, I used to be in the car wash and gas business, and every time the gas prices went up like they did in 2007 and 2008, what happened was was that people stopped buying other things. And it's just, right. it's a, it's a uh, when you start buying gas at a buck more a gallon, everything else goes away. And gas well, is oil, a necessity. It, it's, a, it's a driver of the economy. Right. That, it, oil is the biggest driver, and people don't even realize it. And I'm, I'm the only one that I think has said it. But when we had our catastrophe like four years ago, you know, when we had the, let's call it the Depression, or I don't know if you even call a mini depression in some places it was a full-blown depression you are correct but, but when we had our depression four uh, four years ago i really believe it was fuel you know fuel went to 150 dollars a barrel and i really believe that that had a bigger impact than the banks you know they demonized the banks and the banks did lots of bad things and lots of mistakes and everything else and you, you the biggest ben, uh, the biggest beneficiary of all of those bad moves in a bad way was happened to be Arizona. You know, if you look at Arizona and you look at Florida, different places. But the banks were bad. But I really believe that oil, when it hit at $150, I really believe, you know, that's the blood. That's the blood of the nation. And I really believe that that had an even bigger impact. And it's happening again, slowly. You know, they're greedy. They're greedy people. And, you know, they, their streets are lined with gold. They live, you know, they buy 747 airplanes. They buy a 747 as a private, okay? Right. It's like, you know, serious stuff. And it's all because we allow it to happen. They wouldn't be there except for us. And we have nobody to call them up. One thing I'd do, if I were Obama, I'd be on that phone right now and say, you're not going to do this to us a second time. And it's not the speculators. The speculators wish they had that kind of power. It's OPEC sitting around the table and fixing the price of oil. When we talk about the amount of cash that's sitting uh, on the sidelines right now and the companies that have moved offshore because the United States economy, this this country is not the greatest environment to do business anymore. When you look at the, uh, the he wants to drop the corporate tax rate, close the loopholes, but then you still have the specter of Obamacare. What What's the magic wand thing? If you get a Romney in there as president, what are the, the first four things that need to happen to make this environment the best for existing businesses and new entrepreneurs. Right. Well, well, first of all, people don't have confidence in the country right now. I have a lot of friends. They're big investors. They have no heart. I don't even call them friends, but they have no heart, but they're geniuses. And they want to go to Brazil, and they want to go to China, and they want to go to India, and they want to go to other countries. I said, what about the United States? They don't even know what I'm talking about, okay? Right. They have no confidence in the United States, and they have no confidence in the leadership. And if Romney gets in, I will tell you, that will change quickly. Number one, you'll start taking oil from our very precious ground, and carefully taking it, but you'll start taking energy out of ours. You know, it's turned out, over the last four or five years, we never thought we had it. We have so much energy, we won't know what to do with it. But we're not allowed to get it because of the environmental restrictions and lots of other things. Look at Keystone. Uh, the Keystone, I know, the Keystone is ridiculous. Absolutely. We don't even need Keystone, though, to be honest. We have so much of our We don't need it from Canada, either. I think it's great to have it. It's good do it. It's jobs. It's good. But you know what? We have so much under our ground, we don't even need it. But it, it, what he, when Obama rejected that, I said, what is he doing politically? Because even for himself, everybody would. The unions wanted it. Everybody wanted it. And I guess a few environmentalists got to him and he rejected it. But Mitt Romney would start off with China and get them to stop with the manipulation. And if they if they continue, he would do a number on them because he gets it. Explain to the folks about the manipulation of the currency real quick. Well, they've lowered their currency to a point that it's very, very hard for American companies to compete with Chinese products. So it's very hard to manufacture goods in this country because of the fact that the Chinese goods can come in so inexpensively. And what they've done by doing that is they've taken our jobs, they make our goods, and they manipulated their currencies. And, and what they've done is by manipulating, 
they have built up a war chest that's unbelievable. And the the incredible thing is, through manipulation, they take our money and then they loan it back to us and we pay them interest. The whole thing is ridiculous. He'd also focus on OPEC. But, you know, when you start drilling and you start getting your own supplies, you wouldn't need to deal with OPEC so much. They maybe will start coming to you. Because there really is. There's an abundance of, of product. There's an abundance of oil and natural gas and other things that we have. I mean, they call us the Saudi Arabia of natural gas, and we don't take it. Well, so we have, there's so many things. The potential of this country is so enormous. It's so enormous if it could only be unleashed, but it's not being unleashed. When you look at the uh, the reduction in the uh, in the price of natural gas today as it, as it was uh, against four years ago, uh, it, it shows that once you open up the taps, the price is going to go down. Absolutely. It's going to go down, and there's so much of it. You know, it shouldn't be a precious commodity because we have hundreds and hundreds of years of natural gas, and we don't even use it. We don't take it. And there's so many things that could be done. And, you know, again, we're, we're sort of like the sleeping tiger, but unfortunately we're still sleeping. Now, Mr. Trump, you're still, you're, you're still bullish on, on, uh, on certain aspects of the United States. I know that congratulations, by the way, on, on getting the old post office building in Washington, yeah. D.C. That's great. <laughs> that's that's going to be a very successful project, again, I'm sure. Uh, so you've got you've, you're still a little bullish on on America. Uh, what other parts you tried to do some development in Phoenix in Arizona several years ago? What was the pushback that uh, that that kept you from being able to be successful in Phoenix? Well, I got lucky; they didn't let me do it, and then the market crashed. Okay? <laughs> so, you know, so somebody would say, "Oh, you were brilliant! You you predicted the market in Arizona." I said, "No, I didn't predict it. They wouldn't let me." The um, the local community and the environmental groups didn't want me to build a building that would be, I guess it wasn't even told, it was like 18 stories or something. It would have been really beautiful. I was going to do shopping and lots of other things. And basically, because of the fact, I, the people that did ultimately do it, they just got clobbered. Uh, but because of the fact I didn't get it, the market crashed almost immediately thereafter. And I went, wow, that was a close one because... <laughs> You know what? I'm good, but when the market crashes, it doesn't help. It doesn't matter if you're good or not. So this is one so time I got, I got very lucky. But don't tell people I got lucky. Just <laughs> say people to people that I'm a great sage that I predicted this failure, and uh, but I got out of that one uh, unscathed. I was very lucky. Hey Donald, I got one more question for you. I want you to do one more push for a minute, and then I got a favor to ask you at the okay, end. Okay. Sure. Tourism, because you're you, you're a guy who does hotels and this type of thing. We are a very tourism-driven town here right. in Tucson. Great well, golf courses, absolutely. Well, just just don't get in the cactus like uh, like Tiger did yesterday. Right, that's um, right. You have a big one going on right now. That's true. We um, what, what's your what's your what's your outlook on tourism the next uh, year or so? Well, I think it's good. You know, the beauty is that people want to be in this country. They love this country. They want to be here. Places like Tucson are incredible. I go there. I love the golf in Tucson. I love the weather and I love the golf. And it's just it's just great. You know, I'm trying to buy Doral right now. I'm, um, I guess, the finalist for Doral in Miami. And uh, that'll be terrific. So, you know, people, so I, obviously I feel, because you'll have your ups and you'll have your downs. But yep. ultimately, people want to be in this country. And they want to be in places like Tucson because what's going to beat it? There's nothing like it.